This is Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for joining us. I'm Henry. And I'm Danny. We're here to tear apart recent stories about our nation's armed forces and our veterans. We hope you'll take a critical look at what's happening with our military. And we hope you enjoy the show. Now, let's get started. All right, guys, thanks for joining us today. Um, we are hosting our own little moral injury panel today. And moral injury is a, is a really fascinating subject to me, not just because I, I deal with it at times, but because it, it, it really points out some aspects of our culture, aspects of our, our military that people don't generally talk about. And um, before we get, we get started, I want to go around, uh, around the table, so to speak, and introduce everybody. Of course, we are joined by uh, Major Danny Sherson from Kansas. How are you doing, Danny? Oh, I'm very good. I'm glad to be here on this uh, virtual panel, our <laughs> first, really, of this type. Um, and uh, uh, the, the, Danny's the only one who's going to be forgiven sharing a little bit about themselves. So uh, we're going to move around and we'll, we'll let everybody tell a little bit. So we have, um, very excited to have him here, uh, Pastor Josh Morris. Josh, how are you, how are you doing? Doing well. Thank you, Henry. Um, so my name is Josh Morris. I am a chaplain in the Army Reserve. Uh, and I'm also a hospital chaplain on the civilian side. I work at a pediatric hospital here in Kansas City. Um, so I've been in the Army since 2008 and uh, also currently finishing up a PhD, and I'm writing about moral injury. So a lot of this uh, from my own experience as a chaplain deployed in 2014 and also just through a lot of support with, you know, fellow soldiers hearing their stories, um, just got really interested in what's going on with moral injury. Great. it's outstanding. I, uh, I mentioned before we got recording that I'm, I'm really thankful that people like Josh are still part of the military and want to be there for troops and in whatever situation they're dealing with. Now we move around to a, a fellow I've wanted to have on the podcast for a long time, um, but he's out uh, doing things for the troops, and he is our, our famous war axe. How's it going, brother? Hey, guys. What's going on? Glad, uh, glad to be here. So thanks for, thanks for having me on, and I'm glad, uh, glad we could work this out. Yeah, no, was so glad that you're here, dude. Um, and last, but certainly not, not least is, uh, a, a recent guest on our podcast and, uh, attorney who was kicking ass for service members the world over in DC, uh, Mr. Tyson Manker. Tyson, how are you? Hey, how's it going? It's good to be here with, uh, everybody on this, uh, virtual panel. Uh, I guess my place, I'm, a not the only Marine on the panel, former Marine served in the infantry. And I guess that's my expertise on anything having to do with moral injury, a term that certainly when I was a 21-year-old corporal grunt, 81-millimeter mortarman, uh, moral injury was a term that I'd never heard and certainly something that I wasn't considering as we were one of the uh, contingents on the you know, they called us the tip of the spear, but as weapons company cowboys, we joked and called ourselves the butt of the spear as we participated in the 2003 invasion. But, uh, you know, moral injury, quite 
succinctly, I would just say if PTSD is a traumatic experience, moral injury is how you think about and process that experience in the years that follow. So I look forward to uh, hearing everybody's take uh, on it, and I'm just glad to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, for joining us. Um, and, and you mentioned something that is important to point out here at the beginning, and it's that the while the Department of Veterans Affairs does acknowledge moral injury and have programs and, and things for, for veterans that need it, the Department of Defense does not. They do not have a definition for it. They do not acknowledge moral injury to be anything. And I think that is uh, a really important point that people need to understand as far as us as five veterans trying to deal with this, that it, it, it's not a far and wide topic. It's not something that very many veterans know about or even might consider uh, consider for themselves. So starting off here, I'd like to, I want to throw out a couple definitions just so everybody listening can have a, a good understanding of this. Um, and this is actually from the VA's own website. Uh, like traumatic injury, uh, or excuse me, like psychological trauma, moral injury is a construct that describes extreme and unprecedented life experiences, including the harmful aftermath of exposure to such events. And events are considered morally injurious if they transgress deeply held moral beliefs and expectations. Thus, the key precondition for moral injury is an act of transgression, which shatters certain moral and ethical expectations that are rooted in religious or spiritual beliefs or cultural-based, organizational, and group-based rules about fairness, uh, the value of life, and so forth. Now, a little more specifically about moral injury in war is that moral injuries may stem from direct participation in acts of combat, such as killing or harming others, or indirect acts such as witnessing death or dying, failing to prevent immoral acts of others, or giving or receiving orders that are perceived as gross moral violations. So I thought the best place for us to start today um, was talk to talk about thank you for your service. And I don't know all of your individual thoughts about thank you for your service, but I'm, I'm going to make a, a, a few reasonable presumptions here. I'm going to assume that you, you don't find it very valuable and that when people mention it to you, you you go through a process where you're trying to understand what they're trying to do. Um, and so I'd like to throw it out there. What are what are some of the values uh, we assign to uh, thank you for your service? And uh, um, in what way does the person asking the question matter? Um, and how do we share our thoughts and memories about com combat through people's vacant attempts at respecting one's service. Danny, how about, how about, what do you think? Well, you know, I'm jaded on this, obviously. Uh, I'm sick of thanks for your service. Um, certainly we overestimated or over-exaggerated the extent to which veterans were treated poorly in the Vietnam era, but it did happen, okay? And, and that's unacceptable. Um, I'm, I'm definitely not in favor of that. I wonder sometimes, though, if the pendulum has swung so far to the right or in the other direction, which is probably towards the political right, where thank you for your service has become this like vacuous cop out um, in a society that pays almost no attention to its wars, that doesn't raise taxes, that doesn't declare war, that doesn't have a conscription or a draft system. It seems that uh, to me, thank you for your service has become sort of um, a form of insecurity 
or a form of sort of checking the block. That, you know, I never think about the wars you're in. I'm not particularly interested in whether they're going well or whether we should be fighting them at all. But I want to thank you for your service anyway. And, and, and that's not really meant to be a knock at the people who say it, um, because I know some of them genuinely mean it. But uh, I think it does testify to a uh, complete lack of understanding of, of what it is that veterans go through in the current wars on terror, which uh, I don't even know how to label them anymore. The, maybe we'll call it the perpetual war. It's not ending anytime soon. So, yeah, you know, I'm frustrated with thanks for your service. I'm frustrated with the militarization of sports and the way we've put veterans at the forefront of everything. We put active duty soldiers at the forefront of everything. Uh, and I wonder if it's harmful for the republic. So that, that's my two cents to start it off. As always, I'm probably on the more cynical side, but uh, we all have our role to play. I agree with you. Uh, you know, I, I think that it really depends a lot. I think uh, it's something that I hear all the time. You know, whenever I'm meeting anybody for the first time uh, and they you know, put together the dollars in the military, you're pretty basically guaranteed to get a, well, thank you for your service. And I separate it really into two groups. Uh, you know, when you, look and, when you look at someone and a person's coming up and they're looking me in the eye and I don't see, uh, you know, like the glazed over expression, uh, but instead I have like good eye contact and a firm handshake and they say, uh, thank you for your service. You know, like that, that means something to me, even if I don't agree with it. Well, actually, I don't agree with the war, but I understand when someone's making a good faith effort uh, to say something nice and engage with me in a meaningful way. Now, on the other hand, uh, you know, when, when someone comes up and says, like, thank you for your service and there is that glazed over look and. Uh, there's like a feeling of uncomfortableness to it. I, I don't understand that. I don't, um, I don't like it. And I don't think that it's good. You know, this shouldn't be um, like a, a throwaway greeting. You know, that doesn't uh, do anything for me and it doesn't do anything for uh, society either to uh, venerate a group of people based on an idea of what was going on overseas that has nothing to do with what is actually going on overseas. Yeah, I've started calling it the uh, the Merry Christmas for veterans. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is. No, and uh, for me, oh, go ahead. You know, I'll jump in and join in on that too, that it feels, um, I always feel like I have to caveat it and say, I obviously appreciate um, those who are frank and who really do mean it. But mm -hmm. when it feels like a transaction or it feels like something you're supposed to say, um, and there's no eye contact and, you know, maybe a soft handshake. And, and it just feels like, you know, if you really were, if we really were thankful and appreciative, um, I just always think there should, um, more could be done on the political level to get us out of these <laughs> yes. longest wars. You know, like if, if these horrors that we're bringing home um, really are as horrible as we're saying they are, why aren't we doing more to, these perpetual wars, as you said, Danny, like uh, there's no end in sight. We're, we're already going on two decades. And so precisely what we have to shift the conversation um, to something more meaningful. Yeah. Don't thank me for my service. Uh, you know, make sure instead that my kids don't have to go fight the same dumb war that, yes. uh, that we did. You know, if you really want to thank me, do that. No, that that, that, that yeah. is the ult ultimate yeah. thing that we want, you know, that, that we but nobody seems to be looking around seeing that that happens. And I know that mm -hmm. Danny and I talk about it a lot. Danny's son is much, much closer to military age than, than my boys are now. Scary. And it is. It's, it's very terrifying. Go ahead, Danny. 
Yeah, I mean, next next year, next year, realistically, uh, children born after 9-11 will patrol Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Um, that that has never happened in the history of the American Republic. I think that the founding generation would have never even foreseen that possibility. And what I've been I've started saying out of frustration is, if you want to support veterans, make less of us. Yes. And that's it. You know, if you if that's the best way to support veterans is to make, yeah, make sure my kids don't do it, and make sure someone else's kids don't have to, unless it's really in defense of the United States. And one could argue we haven't fought a war in defense of the United States since at least the Second World War. Uh, that's my hot take that used to get me in trouble in the Marine Corps. Uh, I take it a step further and say we haven't won a war uh, since the Second World War. So, no, I don't know, that in your pipe and smoke it. <clears throat> no, my I, cynicism uh, is directed at the at the leadership or lack thereof, uh, because I think we would all agree leadership starts at the top. Yes. And when you see how the DoD has treated uh, veterans, primarily bad paper veterans. Uh, what incentive do the American people have other than to follow suit and really not give two craps about the treatment of veterans and fall for the talking points on various ideological issues? There are those that want to systematically dismantle the VA uh, mm-hmm. for ideological issues that have nothing to do with veterans. So I see the failures in government and, and ultimately everything that everyone has said is accurate especially in that it is the role and the duty and the responsibility of people to make sure that we haven't fallen asleep at the wheel. And I think for a large part we have. I can tell you that yesterday or the day before, I had the honor and the privilege of greeting the honor flight from central Illinois, the land of Lincoln honor flight. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you that you know, the Vietnam veterans that came out, they were instrumental in my own healing personally. But central Illinois is a place that I can tell you people really do care about veterans. And I'm less cynical about the individual thank yous that I get because I really appreciate it. That's something that the government itself did not extend to me when I came home from completing the mission months before my EAS was over. So by golly, when a a fellow citizen says thanks for your service, that's more than the federal government ever did for me. So, again, I think the the leadership failures start at the top. It does does feel like, especially if we're thinking about it from Uncle Sam, it does feel like a very failed, thought-up slogan that, that really has no meaning. You know, you'll see it on TV. People, the NFL will have commercials during their time of the year and yeah, please other, stand. other places, and 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 I'm I'm sitting there struggling to figure out the meaning here, you know, because because you're 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 trying to put this out to so many different veterans who have so many different experiences, and you're basically lying to all of them. Yes, um, uh, it's more of the same, right? It's exactly. Lie. It's exactly. It's, it's just it's just another meaning. it's just another empty platitude that and and like what Danny mentioned earlier, it allows people to go on with their day. Here's this yes. person. I know they're a combat veteran. They must have seen horrible things. I got it fucking say something so thank you for your service service, man exactly so um i have two quick thoughts on this i wanted to throw out one is i always find it much more thankful we'll say when i know that the person is a fellow veteran especially veterans of past wars exactly what you were talking about tyson that those those links to other warriors especially from other generations is really very instrumental in healing. And I'm sure they go through similar processes with throwing out all the thank yous as well. 
So I will go out of my way if I see somebody wearing a Korea hat or a Vietnam hat, I will go and shake their hand and tell them thank you. And I usually tell them that I'm a veteran too, because I think that that makes the process better. It may, it, it, at least, at least it, it moves it along a little further than when you go to the doctor's office. All right. Um, yeah, I agree with you. Can I, can I jump in with one thing that sure, I've, go I've for been it, thinking man. about? I've been trying to put it together in my head. Uh, there's, there's one aspect to, to thank you for your service that I don't think that we talk enough about, and it's the guilt you know, that I believe that I can see drives a lot of these people. You know, if someone comes up to me and says, you know, thank you for your service. I never could have done uh, what you did. You know, like I don't have what it takes uh, to be a Marine, to be an airman, to, to do whatever. And with those people, I, I always take the time to try to correct that because I think it's unhealthy. I think that it uh, is yeah. at the heart of a, a lot of what's wrong with the United States is that we have come uh, to put veterans on an on a pedestal that's really not deserved. You know, uh, where we act like a veteran is better than a regular person. And what I take the time to say to somebody who says I can't do what you did is. Uh, one, I laugh because it's funny, uh, because I'm a Marine and I know that anyone can go through Marine boot camp. Like, I, I know that for a fact. I've watched it happen. If, if you go to the recruiting True. station and sign the contract, you will become a fucking Marine. Like, you know what I mean? Like, the government is not going to not let you be a Marine. You have to try real hard to make that not happen. And, you know, for me, and I used to tell this to my guys too, my junior Marines, being a Marine is the easiest goddamn job in the world. All you have to do is show up where you're supposed to be at the right time wearing the right clothes, and someone else will do everything else for you. So I think that it's really important to dispel this idea that because a person did not serve, that somehow makes them less valuable uh, than you know any anyone else. Because the truth is that all of us are in this together, and we need to work together. It can't be this... Uh, you know, we put it all on the vets and the vets will somehow figure all this shit out for us. That's uh, it's silly. You know, it, it's just not accurate. It's not true. And it doesn't reflect the best path forward. I, I really like your point. And sometimes I wonder why we put soldiers on the pedestal that we do. Um, poll after poll for the last 20 years has shown that the only public service that the American people still have faith in is the military. The military. You know, the American people, have, they have no faith in the courts, no faith in the Congress. I mean, first of all, that's problematic for the Republic. But second, <laughs> Huge. second of all, I, I, I want to know, why don't we like thank social workers and teachers and nurses yes. for their service? Yeah. Like, yes. it, it's putting a pedestal on a level above them seems like just obtuse and also maybe inaccurate. Um, I think it's dangerous. Yeah. I think it's dangerous for the Republic yeah. brought up. But it plays totally into agree. a lot of those misconceptions that that Matt was mentioning about. You know, where do civilians go to learn about the military? Where do you know and and that that's the whole reason we're doing this today is we want those additional voices to get out there but they they blanket all of the politics with love the veterans be there for the veterans so people that are caught in the middle who have no family that have dealt with the military or have no military experience themselves who can they trust who do the, you know who sounds the most trustworthy at that moment um i've gone to saying thank you for your sacrifice um i think that it 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 uh, somebody pointed it out to me um, at the vet spar event I attended and it, uh, everyone in the military sacrifices. You could say that to family members and dependents too. Everyone does. And so it, it, it takes a, 
a slightly different angle on thanking someone, but it doesn't. It, it gets rid of that really tricky word of service. That's the problem for all of us, isn't it? Is that what are they thanking us for? Where's the service? I don't know. I, I was doing a job, yeah, and that's something that I told uh, guys when I was still a Marine Corps sergeant. You know, they talk about my guys would talk about duty and you know honor and all this other stuff, and say like, yes, uh, yes, duty and honor that is good, and we must act in a moral way, and we must do our jobs properly to the best of our abilities. But remember, at the end of the day, this is a fucking job that we're getting paid to do, and we're actually getting paid pretty well if you look at all of the benefits that come along with being, uh, you know, a, a federal employee that carries a weapon and, and wears body armor. Uh, you know, the, we have actually a lot going for us. And this idea that we're owed something else beyond uh, what our contract stipulates, which is that they'll feed us, clothe us, take care of us if we get broken. You know, I always, uh, I, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with it because of how, uh, well, because of what we were all just talking about, how that separates the military uh, servicemen and women from the population at large. Yeah, and then with that, if I can jump in, with of the course. guilt thing, I think one thing I like what you said, Henry, about the sacrifice versus service is for those who um, wonder why they're being thanked for their service when they feel like, man, I was just, you know, doing like 42 alpha type work, you know, like I was doing HR stuff, like I wasn't, mm -hmm. you know, kicking indoors, I didn't do anything. So then the guilt goes the other way of like, yes, you shouldn't be thanking me. I, I didn't do anything worth, worth thanking. But if you switch it to sacrifice, like when you're there, you don't know. Like it's only in hindsight that you know you're safe, right? So, I mean, it's in the midst of it um, where sacrifice instead of service might be a better word. So that's really helpful, I think. So I'd like to, to switch gears here a bit and uh, talk about military family or I, I wrote in my notes calling it warrior family and that is the relation that we have with other veterans that we actually served with with our units and Tyson when I sat down with you and we talked about your experience I got a, a very different view a very different experience of from what most veterans deal with and um, I'd like you to just just tell us a little bit about that and your own dealings with moral injury how how the type of discharge you got affected your notions of uh, military family. You, you know, you expect Marines to be there for one another. That's the, the line always faithful, right? Semper <laughs> Fidelis, leave no Marine behind, right? Well, God. when I came home, uh, days removed from Iraq, I found my entire command turning on me like the biggest, terrorist because I had smoked a joint with a couple of my fellow Marines. And I've heard since that, oh, you should have known better. Well, I'll tell you what, when I came back, the things that mattered before deployment were not the things that mattered after deployment. And, you know, we didn't realize what pain we were in, but to have the traumatic uh, episodes of war not even be addressed and you know, the next thing that I know, knew, it was a new trauma created from my own family uh, that I've said more than once, and I attest to this day. The biggest source of pain for me is the way that the Marine Corps turned on me, not the war itself, uh, because uh, I was not only, uh, you know, I come back and 
the, one of the Marines had been caught and under CID pressure had given everybody up. So I'd been snitched on. And then my own command did everything they could to violate my constitutional rights. They interrogated me without counsel. They threatened me with 50 years of imprisonment. This is the kind of stuff that we were putting people in Guantanamo for. I was receiving the same kind of treatment the moment I stepped off the battlefield. Mm -hmm. That kind of, uh, you know, just sabotage from your own family, I, it's tough to put it into words uh, to describe. And I guess my biggest disappointment is, you know, I think due to the hierarchy, the dog-eat-dog -dog, uh, nature of the services and the hierarchy, whether it's real or perceived of the MOSs, I remember as an infantryman jogging around 29 palms in formation, singing cadences like, look all around and what do I see? Bunch of pogue bitches want to be like me. <laughs> and that's the kind of mentality that we had that you are not as good as us. And, and in the same kind of way, we chewed each other up and spit each other out. And I was on the receiving. It didn't matter that I was the first non-commissioned officer meritorious in my group of boots. And I picked up and I was a squad leader and I was gun one, the fastest gun, adjusting gun with Matthew Nail, the fastest 81 gun arguably in the Marine Corps in the world at that time. We went over to Iraq and did our jobs with efficiency. And I come home and got literally cannibalized for one piece of minor misconduct. And I don't think people realize the, the, the effect that that can have on someone's life. I mean, I, I've now been contacted by hundreds of bad paper veterans who all tell the same story. And I think that, you know, like I said, my healing began when I started hanging out with Vietnam veterans who were the group to welcome me with open arms and say, hey, thank you for your service. Truly come sit in a room and laugh with us. Come have good life experiences. You know, so I'll tell you what, if the I, I think that the Marine Corps and the fighting forces, they always have to have some sort of a animalistic mentality as far as we've got to go kill other people to keep our national security safe. That will never change. But what I hope for is an armed forces that can then reconcile, hey, PTSD is real, yes. moral injury is real, so we need to prepare our troops for the realities of you know, carnal combat where they're going to see death and then coming home and reintegrating to, into society by accepting and facing these realities. It's possible, but as long as DOD keeps its head buried in the ground and you see time and time again the, the double standard with officers doing this and that and still getting to retire with full benefits while the Lance Corporals and below. Look at the Terminal Lance uh, comic that Maximilian puts on. I mean, it's, it's brilliant because it just points out the stupidity of the Marine Corps refusing to change in ways that would be beneficial uh, to the Marine Corps, would live up to the motto Semper Fidelis, and it would make the Marine Corps and all the services uh, their true potential. That needs to happen, but it's just not. And it's detrimental. And in, in, in the flip side of that, they're sending home people literally to be jumping into body bags, whether they yes. kill themselves, they overdose on drugs, they're sending home a problem, which then has a ripple effect into the communities which are felt by first responders, EMTs, police,
family members who are frantically trying to get their loved one who served the help that they need. But now there are multiple roadblocks because the VA is wrongfully pushing them away or whatever the case may be. It's a complete disgrace. And, you know, it's, it, it took 15 years of 15 years of suicide to actually get movement on the damn issue. But we, you know, if, if politicians won't do it, it's got to come from honorably discharged veterans to say, you know what, maybe that guy that got the OTH isn't a piece of shit. Maybe I should do some outreach to him or her. Was it really that bad what they did? Because you know what, they served overseas after all. More than 99% of the population did. If, if we, we can't make that acknowledgement in our own veteran community, then how can we expect politicians or civilians to make that uh, determination on their own? Very true. Yeah, Very I, true. I agree with you completely. Uh, I mean, I don't think there's anything more ridiculous in the world than uh, uh, the way that veterans were treated. Uh, you know, guys and gals who came home with drinking problems, who came home and, uh, you know, did drugs, who, who did any number of things that were uh, really symptomatic of uh, trauma, right? Uh, things that we know are now nothing more than uh, caused by the job that we all did mm -hmm. and to slam the door in these fellas faces and to tell them, you know, fuck off, you're not good enough or all the things that you did, you know, your service, that doesn't mean anything to us anymore. It's, it's wrong and it's a betrayal. And I'm glad uh, uh, that there are men and women out there uh, who are saying no, you know, who are saying enough, you know, we have to take care of you. And I'm proud, to, I'm proud to know you Tyson. You know, I think that the work that you've done come, uh, uh, come a long way you know if you think back to the attitude that was 100 percent ptsd is not real you know if you're exhibiting these problems you're a pussy uh to a more accepting uh you know time now where we do recognize that these problems exist and people are willing to talk about uh suicide and post-traumatic stress disorder and uh you know problem drinking and family dynamics but there is definitely still a lot of work to do but there's this this really strong sense of denial in the veteran community, and I think that's because most of us are men too. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we 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 don't want to face things, we don't want to see things. There was a, a story I covered a while ago about how the blast pressure caused by cruise serve weapons can actually give somebody a traumatic brain injury. You know, we're not talking about incoming fire; we're talking about somebody on a range here in the United States training for war can end up with. A similar traumatic brain injury to, that people have seen in combat. Now, this is everyday mm -hmm. stuff. I mean, you guys that served Absolutely. in the Corps, Josh and Danny served in the Army, we know how much shooting we do. We do a fuck ton of shooting. So you're telling me that this thing, which is essentially like a stapler, if I worked in an office, but this 50 cal machine gun, that's mine. And when I was a gunner, it was mine, could, could do that. And so it, it's not always about specific damage about and even damage that we identify it's about mm -hmm. being intellectually honest about what military service really does to people you know and 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 that's one that's a, it's a scientifically proven one people can't argue with stuff like that moral injury is a little more of a gray area a little more of a we can discuss it it kind of well this and not and everything but those kind of hard things people need to know them people and 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 understand what they're accepting when they sign on the dotted line. I think that that's a really important thing because there are lots of people who still want to be Marines, no matter how badly you tell them they're going to fucking die. 
it, it, it doesn't matter to them. But there are others that will consider your thoughts, you know? Core, right? <laughs> Have you all read the book? Uh, it's written by Carl Marlantis. It's called What It Is Like to Go to War. So he's a uh, yeah, he's, a, he, he's excellent. He's, he's amazing. Really excellent. You know, I think that reading this book. Uh, so Carl was a, a Vietnam uh, Marine Corps infantry platoon commander, and uh, had you know typical experiences in Vietnam uh, for a Marine Corps infantry platoon commander, and came home and had his life uh, had challenges in his life that we see very much in today's. Uh, veteran community with uh, alcoholism, with risk-taking behavior, and, uh, you know, the, the problems that come personal and public along with that. And Carl's book is amazing because it is so honest about his experience. And it was one of the first times uh, that I, I can remember uh, reading something that made so much sense. And uh, it made me feel as though, for one of the first times, I felt, oh, shit, it's not just me. You know, when he starts talking about uh, the way that his body reacted, the, the things that he's thinking about after trying to come to grips with what he did and saw and was around uh, in combat and just saying that these feelings are normal, you know, that this is the experience of war. And his point, his main thrust through this whole book is that we must be honest with ourselves and with yep. society yep. about the role that soldiers play and what they really do. Because the more bullshit you have around it, all you're doing is sending people into a situation that you know is horrible with unrealistic expectations. And that is why these moral injuries are yes. so damaging. Yes. I got to uh, participate in a, a vet spar event a few weeks ago. I don't know if you guys know what that is, but they do uh, meetings between uh, civilians who have no military experience and mm -hmm. veterans like us. And we get to, the, the last one we did was about thank you for your service. And we all talked about it around the whole room and got to hear from 12 or 13 different veterans and 10 or 15 different normal civilians, family members, stuff like that. So we can break that ground so that th those kind of things. I'd also like to throw out there um, Danny's book, uh, The Ghost Riders of Baghdad. It is a, an amazing piece of work for exactly this kind of stuff. I didn't know that uh, officers would cuss that much in front of former enlisted. <laughs> uh, we're going to talk about that after the show, Danny. Um, but, uh, but no, it, it really is a, a neat, succinct tale through his experience. And it's his book if he wants to keep <laughs> talking about it. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, the thing started out as like an angry rant against some bullshit I heard on the Senate floor about the Iraq surge, but yeah, it developed into so much more. And, and once I started interviewing all the guys that I had served with who were still alive and the families of those who weren't, it definitely went in that direction a little bit and it started to become really the story of a platoon more than of one guy or of one war. Um, you know, there's almost nothing more frustrating than some of like the platitudes about what it means to be a veteran or what it means to go to war, especially from people who, you know, um, who, who haven't been there, but, you know, Tim O'Brien was a Vietnam vet who wrote a lot of great books, including the things they carried, which I think won Wonderful. a surprise, uh, you know, and he kind of talks about how like, you know, uh, true war stories are the ones that don't have any moral to them, you know, that there's not some happy ending, um, 
that, you know, if you don't like cussing, then, you know, don't send your kids to war. Cause like, if you send boys away, they're going to come back and, and it's going to be ugly, you know, and we're always surprised by it, aren't we? We're always utterly unprepared at the VA, um, in the civilian world. We're always totally unprepared for what happens after every war, which is that we break a few million people, uh, yes. or at least a few hundred thousand, uh, we release them back into society and then, uh, you know, uh, we're, we're like appalled by the fact that there's PTSD and there's alcohol and drug addiction. It's, yeah. It's, My it's, God, how could this be happening? <laughs> and it is true though, but the, the, the service, the services eat their young. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. Tyson, you laid it out perfectly, but you know, it's such a hierarchical organization. You know, I was a Cav Scout. Our motto every day that we would yell was if you ain't Cav, you ain't shit. And we meant it. Okay. And, and it's so stupid when you break it down but it but it when you absolutely but but when you really start thinking about it it it, it permeates the entire organization whether it's i'm better than you because yep. i do this mos i'm better than you because my discharge is better i'm better than you because i have two bronze stars and you have one i mean yep. the whole system yep. is like built on this rather than on like brotherhood so there's this myth of brotherhood and i'm not saying it doesn't exist between individuals but it's right. not necessarily how the leadership handles it um i've watched uh, you know, I, look, I've, I'm a mid-level officer who's been in the service about a decade and a half. The fact that two of the soldiers on my direct command have committed suicide in that time is mathematically shocking. Okay, because the fact that that has happened when you start multiplying it by thousands and thousands of officers and then tens and hundreds of thousands of soldiers, you realize that this is a real epidemic, and it's never gotten enough attention, not after any war. And, and, and the truth is, we may have hit our heads in the sand, but we always knew this. Just yesterday, I was watching a movie from 1946, okay, a black and white film called uh, The Best Years of Our Lives. And it's all about three broken veterans who come home, two psychologically broken and one physically broken. And this is a year after World War II ends. So we knew, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, we knew this was a problem long ago. We've just chosen to hide it. And we, and then we act surprised after every war. You know what? And it goes back to what Tim O'Brien said. If you send kids to war, they're going to go home, come home talking dirty. They're going to come home broken. And too often we forget that. That's something, though, we don't talk about much as far as the pre-Vietnam era. You know, I, I don't – I've never felt comfortable with my uh, 94-year-old grandfather about asking him if he ever – felt suicidal if he you know it there 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 to me there seems to be a generational gap for them but i don't know if that's just part of their you know unspoken code of silence or is there a lot more meat there about what really happened and people just refuse to talk about it in the era i would say there's a lot more there and that you could by asking that question i think you'd be surprised of his willingness to share and um especially from a veteran, I think uh, hearing it from you or hearing you ask and being willing to listen to those stories, I think is a, is a gift to him in that generation. Um, you know, like the myth, not the myth, but the, the greatest generation, right? That that was the last war that we quote won. And then, so what does that mean for them? You know I mean? They're, mm-hmm. yeah, how they're you, carrying stuff too. How do you put a thought like the greatest generation in with what Danny was just talking about, about, about us thrown into a fucking human meat grinder? You, you know, you know that those, those two can't be, they're entirely mutually exclusive. You can't put them together, but the reality is very much in the middle. And so it would require us to put them together. So it, it, it's, I don't know. I, uh, <laughs> lost my train of thought there. Sorry. <laughs> well said. Um, 
so I uh, want uh, turn to a little bit different thing here. We got um, we're coming up on the uh, the 18th anniversary of September 11th, and we're just three years away from 20 years since the towers fell. And that day really changed our our national calculus of how we saw and dealt with our security state, and certainly how our security state dealt with us. Um, and 9-11 allowed the growth of political will for us going to Afghanistan, going to Iraq, and now Syria, Yemen, etc. Um, it's undeniable, historically, that the Bush administration knew that 9-11 wasn't the strike or hit on America that they claimed for it to be. My question to you all is, what role do you see September 11th um, in and its relationship to the wars that followed, how do you think that works in, in dealing with moral injury? And I'll, I'll throw out mine, mine here first. Um, I know for me, once I decided that the war was futile, I, I stopped caring about much about the happenings outside of my unit. You know, once I saw that both there was a lack of progress we were making in country, we had no, no awareness about their culture or even the bigger steps of the, the political leanings of everyone, once I saw all that, I just turned the volume down. I just, you know, I'm going to take care of my Joes, we're going to get back from mission, and we're going to redeploy. And, Danny, I'd, I'd, like, to, I'd like to throw this one to you. You are a, 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 a die-in-the-wool New Yorker, Staten Island born and raised. How do you see our collective relationship with September 11th? I've got a very complex relationship with September 11th because on one hand I can't get the image of people jumping out of those towers out of my head on one hand I deal with the fact that family friends died and all the streets in my neighborhood are now named after dead firefighters so I in some sense and I come from a family of firefighters so in some sense there's that visceral connection to it um, in hindsight 17 years and, and two illegal wars later um, or at least immoral or unnecessary wars uh, we can argue the legality uh, I think I've come to understand that September 11th told us more about ourselves than about Al-Qaeda. I think that 9-11 unearthed something very dark and militaristic in the American psyche. Um, first thing it did was shock Americans. Americans were shocked that someone would attack us, not realizing that an attack on the United States was in some ways a completely rational response, not a moral one, I'm against the attack but a rational response to American attempts at hegemony in the Middle East and around the world. So the first thing it did was shock Americans into why do they hate us, you know, and without any understanding. And the second thing is it unearthed this uh, unique American exceptionalist desire to have total hegemony in the world, to be the superpower and to have its soldiers everywhere. Now, we had already had that prior to September 11th, but September 11th made it okay for that to be overt. And that's what I mean when I say it unearthed something dark in the American psyche. Um, America had always had hundreds of bases around the world. Now we had more, you know, several hundred bases, and we were engaged in combat by the time Obama leaves office. He's a liberal, by the way, right? Uh, by the time Obama leaves office, we're bombing eight countries directly, okay? We are directly engaged in combat in eight countries. So I think September 11th provides the, uh, the sort of the uh, justification for uh, American militarism and uh, perpetual war, President Trump's probably not going anywhere, even despite all the madness that's happened in the last few days. I doubt he'll be impeached. I wouldn't be surprised if he wins again, in fact. But yeah, what we do know is that we, we, we will reach the 20th anniversary 
of the war in Afghanistan. We will reach that. Um, I would be willing to put all, all my money and probably my youngest kids uh, uh, sale up on that uh, bet. But we're going to fight a 20-year war in Afghanistan. We're going to have to look back and ask how this happened. And I think part of the reason it happened is because September 11th unearthed a dark militaristic streak in the American psyche. I would I'd For me, absolutely 9-11 agree. will forever be con- connected because that's the justification as, as young Marines when we watched the towers fall from 29 Palms on TV, uh, we instantly knew deployment, rotation schedule, we're going. We didn't realize how much, very, uh, how very much in the lead we would be. We went over there, and I can tell you all that we literally drew in chalk on the side of our AAVs, payback is a B, with pictures of Saddam Hussein. We believed that Saddam Hussein was responsible for that attack on American soil, those attacks, and that we were going to avenge those attacks. We were doing killing that needed to be done. There was nothing immoral for the killing that we were preparing ourselves to go do. And guess what happened? When we get over there, there's no military that was in charge of this Policy. Little, little did we know that the perpetrators came from a different country, several countries over. As a matter of fact, it turns out that we should have never been in Iraq in the first place. That is what fueled my disenfranchisement when I kind of put these pieces together in the years after I was booted for doing exactly what we were told to do. And guess what? The people that ended up dying in the crossfire, not a single one of them had a thing to do with 9-11. Not a single one of them had a, really a connection to even the military. There were civilians that were caught in the wrong place at the wrong time, and we believed we were there to avenge 9-11, and we ended up just killing people that had nothing to do with it. In the years after, how can you not think about that and feel some sort of remorse? I've always told myself and people who have asked that I felt were genuine and deserve the response is that I don't hold myself responsible for the deaths in Iraq because we didn't choose to be there. We were following orders and we did what we had to do to keep each other alive and come home in one piece. All of that blood is on the hands of those who decided to put us there. And that's a huge toll for us to bear as troops on the ground to bear that brunt. And I think that is at the, the beginning of what we talk about moral injury. We had to do things that were not moral exactly because, hey, we're, we're, you know, how can you justify being ready to kill? Well, we were ready to kill enemy soldiers. And what we ended up doing was shooting teenagers and women on accident. That's a huge thing to bear. And people say, trying to defend their homes, essentially. Exactly. Exactly. You know, uh, I, I can say that uh, for me, uh, and I was a tanker, so I, uh, in Afghanistan, uh, my vehicle was destroyed by an IED. And, you know, there were some other things that we saw and did there that were disturbing. But for me, uh, it is what has affected me the most was that we were lied to. Uh, and exactly what Tyson's talking yep. about with 
we were told that these are the people that did it. Uh, you know, we are doing what's right. You know, that these uh, these men are are you know enemies of the United States. And then when you believe that, and not only you believe it, but you teach your men to believe it, and then you go in and actually do it. And then you you see uh, how how you've been played. You know, uh, right. coming to that realization that you've been taken uh, for such a, a fucking ride is devastating. And I think that above everything else that happened, that feeling of betrayal, uh, knowing that the government of this country lied to me and lied to my man and that people on both sides died for that uh, that is what weighs on me the heaviest it was that i was complicit in that and that is why i feel such a strong responsibility to never be quiet about it and to push uh you know against these wars and for in the future for when we do send men and women to war because of course we will that we're honest about it well said. Yeah, and I, I'll just add my two cents and not add much to what you all haven't said, but the leadership issue, you know, Danny, as you mentioned, like there's no end in sight and we can't really think we're going to leave Afghanistan um, under the current administration and how much of that is just for, you know, keeping political face. And so then what happens is we're continuing to send people, we're continuing to drop, you know, I, I I mean, the mother of all bombs, right? We do that kind of stuff in 2017, 2018, when we're so far removed from 9-11, we're so far removed from um, those threats that we thought were credible. Now it's like, well, what are we doing? What are we continuing to do as we are almost at two decades with absolutely no end in sight and um, continuing to send young men and women over there um, who might not be disillusioned yet, but then, you know, once you get over there, and you realize what there's no know, hiding. Really, yeah, absolutely. There's no hiding it. And then you come home and it's like, what do you do with that? What do you do with that experience? Mm -hmm. um, trying to relate that with, you know, fellow civilians. Yeah, I was actually in um, Afghanistan on September 11th, 2011. And Reuters found me. They were looking, I mean, not because I'm anything special. They, they were looking for a New Yorker in Kandahar province in a combat role to sure. interview. And they did this like retrospective or short article on me, um, for the 10th anniversary. And, uh, I, the guy who wrote it was a really pretty good writer. And, and he was surprised by my answers because what I told him was that there was no connection between the enemy I was fighting at that time, which was Taliban, nominally Taliban farm boys and September 11th. And I would say there were no Afghans on that plane. Uh, the people I'm fighting were mostly children when Mullah Omar decided to, harbor Osama bin Laden and most of them can't find America on a map and have no intention of coming <laughs> to attack us but they're only attacking us because we're here yeah we're they in can't the write their own name they're not getting a they're not getting a passport they don't write or read okay mm -hmm. so my point was look this is completely disconnected from the 9-11 I'm just here doing a job I yes. said that it published I got reprimanded verbally <laughs> by my battalion commander for demoralizing the troops he said if <laughs> if if your soldiers read this they're going to be demoralized I said, sir, tell me which part isn't true. And of yes. course, he was a fucking moron, like most lieutenant colonels and above. Uh, so, you know, I mean, he, I should take that back. That's not No, totally you shouldn't true. take it back. He was a moron. He, he, he was a moron, personally, <laughs> I will say. 
and it, you know couldn't understand what was true and what wasn't. But it didn't matter what was true. It mattered whether I was following the party line. And speaking the truth in that instance was going against the party line. There you go. I mean, you're fucking up his promotion, man. You got to keep your mouth shut. And you see that you see that play out today, as as the wars continue. You see that the that the the same wheels that we all went through continue to spin. Yeah, combat isn't isn't like it was when we started. I often mention about Eric Shinseki uh, re, um, retiring after he went to Congress and told them that our invasion in Iraq was going to take at least two hundred thousand troops. And again, I I know very little about him. Um, uh, but I have to actually wonder, you know, where are those general officers whose cognitive dissidence is already at the top? You know, where, I mean, certainly there are still people in service who have been in almost that long. Danny, you're certainly included in this. Josh, you're also still in the service. Um, that it, it just becomes that role because troops can't, we, we can't be into politics when we're, we're going to the range, when we're training for combat. We can't keep up with the conversation or be in, as informed if we're if we're fighting that hard if we're dealing with that kind of stuff so even guys today there are still 18 year olds i'm sure who are i was told hey we're fighting this war in afghanistan i want to do my part and come home and you know their process is again almost two decades later but it hasn't changed there's nothing and, and again i i don't know about you guys I get really down on myself about feeling powerless to get that message out to more people. I want more people to to hear us, to see what we're saying. Um, but it's 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 a very hard thing, and it also it's hard for other veterans to stomach because they haven't considered these things. A lot of veterans don't consider these things, aren't considering the 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 fucking meat grinder that is is troops' existence. So, um. Got a few housekeeping notes for you guys. Uh, first off, there's several different ways you can keep up with the podcast. Obviously, subscribing with your favorite podcast place, iTunes, Stitcher, uh, Podcast Addict, what the, what have you. Um, you can keep up on new episodes that way. We also have a page on Facebook, and we have our, our main t- Twitter feed, um, which is at Fortress on a Hill. Um, if you happen to be a friend of the main fortress facebook profile not the page but the profile you it would probably be a good idea to go like the page anyway because that's where most of our stuff will get posted um also on the pages where we'll be having uh, live streams or any other events that danny and i have going on second thing um i'm going to be start taking in a lot more military films and i'd like all of you to join me um there's so many that i've never seen especially uh, a lot of older ones and I think that, that we, we need to talk about them more. I think that that's the way that people learn the most about the military, and, and we as veterans need to parse through some of it. So what I'm going to do is I plan to start writing reviews on these films, and I'm going to post a schedule of dates for doing a Google Hangout to talk about the films. I'll, I'll give everybody a good two weeks between announcing what the film's going to be and scheduling the Hangout. If you want to send a message to be read or audio to be played during the Hangout, if you can't make it to the actual Hangout, let me know and I'll include it. Um, the first film I'm going to be doing is 2001's Black Hawk Down. It was uh, a seminal film for me in uh, learning about the military, and I think it's a, it's a really good starting point for us. And please email me if you have uh, any suggestions for films you'd like me to add to the list. 
Third, we need some reviews from you guys. If you're uh, an avid listener of Fortress on a Hill, please take the time, go to iTunes, leave us a review. We would really appreciate it. It's incredibly helpful for our downloads, and it lets others know the type of podcast we've created. Only takes a couple minutes, so please, please go drop us a review on iTunes. And lastly, we're always in need of more patrons on Patreon. Everything that Danny and I create for the podcast is out of our love for our fellow veterans and about the issues that we're covering. Unfortunately, love doesn't have a good exchange rate with the American dollar. So instead of love, we'll, we'll just take American dollars. It, uh, it helps us pay for server costs, equipment expenses, advertising, and savings for big stuff down the road. A few dollars a month helps us more than you could possibly know. Um, I'm in, currently in the process of redoing our rewards. So if you have anything that you want Danny and I to do in our rewards, please let us know. Now, back to the podcast. A while ago, I listened to uh, a podcast from the, see if I can get the name right, the U.S. Army um, Historical Education Center. They actually record lectures that are, that are pretty good about a, a variety of topics, and one of them was by uh, David Wood. I don't know if any of you guys are familiar with him, but he is uh, um, someone on the forefront of dealing with moral injury. He's written uh, several books, and uh, he was one, the name from the study that I sent. Um, Anyways, he, he posed the question about, is war truly able to be antiseptic? You know, is it, are we really able to separate ourselves out from any kind of, of conflict? What are the, what, how do we determine as, as lay people what are the good wars and the bad wars? And we started to hear some Trump cabinet members talking about this idea of a, a bloody nose strike, which is the stupidest fucking thing in the world to me. But... When, when they mention that, when they, they don't ever really break it down what that would mean. Danny and I have talked a few times about the, you know, the low-yield nukes and how they're just as bad as the large ones. Yes, they won't radiologically obliterate an area as big as the, as the big ones will, but we're still talking about changing the entire nature of our world by using even one of them. So how do we do that? Is, is there a way that war can truly be surgical in its nature? And... How do you guys think that the media and our TV and film industry fit into that? I'm just going to jump in real quick uh, and say um, it is impossible for war to ever be uh, completely discriminatory. Um, Drones are by far um, some of the most precise weapons of war that have ever, ever, ever hit the battlefield short of a guy with a sword making sure the guy in front of him is also a combatant the drone is as close as we've been to precision warfare since the beginning of firearms okay so now we're talking since about the 1300s and still thousands upon thousands if you believe third-party reports and hundreds upon hundreds if you buy the dod reports of civilians have been killed in american drone strikes which tells me that uh, if predator drones with their incredible imagery and extraordinary uh, bomb-guided unit accuracy cannot ensure that only combatants are killed, then we must accept 
a truism, which is the Klaus-Witzian version of war, which is that war is always chaos, there is always a fog of war, and war is inherently messy. And when we admit that, then it should lead us, it doesn't, but it should lead us <laughs> to then be very careful about whether we get involved in wars. It should lead us to be very cautious about using the military arm over diplomacy unless it is absolutely necessary. So what we fought in our lifetime is a series of wars of choice. The last war that was not a war of choice, you can argue, was the Second World War. And that's if you believe we absolutely had to fight Nazi Germany and Pearl Japan. I happen to think we did at some point, so I'm going to say that that wasn't a war of choice. Every single war since then has been a complete voluntary action. It's a, we've been playing away games only since yes. the Civil War. Yeah, we, we, we completely export all of our chaos to someone else. We, we, we go to somebody else's barbecue and, and turn out the pile of light. You know, and uh, that's one of the things that I used to tell myself uh, after I became disillusioned, after I realized, okay, the mission isn't what it's supposed to be. I bought into this idea of, okay, well, I'm doing this so that we don't have to fight in the continental United States. And, uh, you know, it's an idea uh, that I heard from several of my friends, you know, we sit around and talk about this and, and I've started to hear it more recently, too, is that it's important to have these wars as sort of a venue so that people who want to hurt Americans can go there and be killed by the U.S. military. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think it's uh, just one of like the most idiotic things that anybody has ever thought of. And I'm embarrassed that I was able uh, to delude myself into believing it, you know, it, I think that the point that I would like everyone to understand is that we could win uh, the war in Afghanistan tomorrow uh, by leaving. If you pull out all the troops, everyone comes home, that's it. Because as we've already been talking about, most of the people that uh, I fought, certainly, and it sounds like the rest of you were engaged with, uh, were not hardcore terrorists, right? Like these are not... Uh, you know, top 10 most wanted guys. These are children uh, who don't want us to run over their opium crops. Uh, there are people who, you know, pretty understandably are upset that there's a foreign army driving around through their country. And it seems uh, to me now in my, you know, ripe old age, looking back with uh, the benefit of hindsight, that if we fucking leave, they can't kill us anymore. And we won't be killing any more uh, civilians either because we won't be there. I don't know, though. Maybe I'm just crazy. Well, yeah. I, mean, we're, I think I agree. I agree that we should pull out. Uh, however, I think at this point, we should all agree that there is no win. Uh, <laughs> it's hard to argue that after approaching decades, thousands of lives lost, trillions of dollars, that we can, wasted. in any reasonable fashion, wasted, right? In any reasonable fashion, come home and say, Mission accomplished, we won, they mm -hmm. lost. As a matter of fact, those aren't even the criteria for war anymore. What, what are we, you know, as was pointed out, what is the objective? I'd like to say to the point, the question, does the media and Hollywood play a role? Uh, absolutely. Uh, for the first eight, nine years of the war, certainly the time that I served, uh, the American people were censored from the realities on the ground. As a matter of fact, the press was forbidden 
from showing the bodies of returning American yes. soldiers and Marine sailors, airmen that had been killed. Uh, these are the kinds of things that brought the Vietnam War to an end. I can tell you by reading through the news accounts, they did a body count on a day-to-day basis. And guess what? That society was very engaged. Of course, there was a time of conscription and many other things were different. But if the American public had a better understanding of the war, they would be more engaged. And how could we do that? Well, we could do that by, you know, having the news actually report on the war instead of, you know, the average take home for the tooth fairy uh, that some news channels report on, just ludicrous stories of ducks crossing the street when we've got uh, young Americans being slaughtered for no purpose overseas in their name. So if we had these uh, images coming home, uh, I think the American people would react differently. So absolutely, the media itself is complicit in not covering the war in a realistic manner. And Hollywood, in turn, is complicit in glorifying all that should not be glorified. And in con- conjunction, you know, you've got an American public that sure as shit is set up to not understand the realities of what is done in their name. But but the first, the, the, the huge technological change has allowed us to wage war in so many different ways with so few people. And if you consider drones in it with our people not even on the ground. We, we don't even need to have people in country. We'll even violate somebody's sovereign airbase, airspace, excuse me, if we happen to believe there's a, there's a threat there that needs to be dealt with. Um, so you know, I'll, I'll say that I think, the problem is, uh, I think that maybe the best opportunity the drones provide us now is the opportunity for American people to see what the war actually is. Uh, did you all see the footage that came out of, uh, started coming out of Syria, I think probably in late 2016, and all it was is drone footage uh, showing cities that were completely destroyed and bombed out. Uh, I hadn't seen anything, oh, yeah. anything like that since uh, looking right. at you know, history books about you know, Germany after the fire bombings. Look at that right. video. You know, good on Google. Find these, uh, find these images, and tell me, looking at that, that the average person can't say that's fucking wrong, and we shouldn't be doing that. And I think it is so important because Americans are so insulated from the rest of the world. Uh, if nothing else, just because of our geography, we really are on an island away from all of this uh, horror that uh, we do inflict on the rest of the world. And I think it's so important for the average American to really get an idea of what these wars actually mean. You know, what does it mean when we say that, you know, we went into this country? And what does it mean when you say that you fired missiles, you know, at a, a city block? I think that stuff is very important for the average person to understand uh, and really, really understand, too, not just hear about. It also includes our, our foreign weapon sales, too because yes. we're, we're giving lots of everything to Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, whoever wants it, and they use it in the way that they most see fit, which is probably on their own people. Um, but no, in the, in the era of Trump, even the basic information has been harder to get. There was that Marine that got wounded in Syria recently, and I don't remember what outlet it was, but they had to pry that information out of DOD. It, 
was, you should know. We should be able to know, shouldn't we? Somebody should be able to say, what's the official stat count on deaths mm -hmm. in Afghanistan right now for 2018? Please let me know. Or uh, guys wounded in action in, in Syria. Why, why is that information able to be manipulated? So basic people, even if we have completely forsaken, you know, CNN, Fox, all those kind of things, and look for information ourselves, it's not even available then. And there are no anti-war voices for the most part in the mainstream media, whether it's Fox or MSNBC. The people that are brought on are retired professionals who have carried water for the U.S. government for so long that they've lost okay. all sense of critical thinking. So the only military voices and the only intelligence veteran voices on television are these insiders. And they'll nibble around the edges. They'll say, well, this tactic is wrong or, well, this president's administration isn't you know, uh, fighting these wars the way I would have done it or the way the administration reported. But you don't get a voice up there saying, pause, everybody take a timeout, pump the brakes. What the hell are we doing overseas in dozens of countries? What the hell are American Green Berets doing in Niger when no one can find it on a map or pronounce it? I mean, those voices don't make it into the mainstream media. Instead, we get former CIA directors, retired generals. And these guys, some of them are smart guys, but they nibble around the edges of the problem. And instead of ever bringing anyone on who wants to tear down the whole superstructure, which is what we have to do. Uh, the reality is we're so far down the rabbit hole. We are, we are so far through the looking glass that it's not time for you know nibbling around tactics or operations. We need to look at strategy and say – Maybe this entire thing is misguided and counterproductive. You won't see that. I'm looking at CNN as I talk to you right now. You won't see it. Um, we've been doing this podcast for over an hour. There hasn't been a single word on television except Trump and Trump's lawyers. And you could watch TV right now and believe the United States has not been at war for 18 years. Yes, especially not in however many countries, too. Uh, what did we say? Eight countries are being bombed by the United States? Uh, that's strange to think about, isn't it? You know, uh, like, we're in, how the hell did this happen? We're in 70% of the countries in the world. Those are the only eight we have. We're actively bombing, but we're everywhere else, too. That seems fine. The irony <laughs> that these things are done, arguably, in the name of national security, but that we, I think, would all agree that extending these policies uh, jeopardizes national security uh, shouldn't be overlooked. The, the more that we rack up debt, the more that we overextend a smaller and smaller military, the more vulnerable to attack at home we are. I, you know, Absolutely. I think we need to really get with the program here, realize that there are some serious adversaries around the world who are plotting maniacally right now, probably forming alliances uh, that we wouldn't really like. And, you know, the, the long game of our, our enemies, if you do any research, is there. And we can't even see past our nose, which makes <laughs> me worried about the future. We really need to, uh, for all of the reasons stated, bring the troops home, get our financial situation in order, and, you know, consider the, the whole mission itself. I agree. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'd like to talk now about... Uh, Collective memories. Um, I know uh, Ken, Ken Burns' recent documentary on Vietnam talked about how both how powerful collective memories of war can be, but more importantly than that, it shows that veterans do not always agree 
on our collective memory of any given event or, or war. Uh, Danny and I have mentioned on the podcast many times that we both see the war so differently for our fellow veterans. And so my question for you, how do we deal with moral injury in a climate where so many veterans either remember differently or and 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 share share that view with whoever might listen to veterans who have no wish to have any part of the discussion how how do we deal with that collective memory well i i'll jump in with something we're talking about in the last question like i've written about this and think about this that um it's hard to have a different memory of the war when the war that's being presented, you know, like you're not allowed to show coffins or you're not allowed to, you know, have those death counts. And so the memory that we're collecting of the war isn't as robust as the actual experience of the war. Literally Uh, censoring the information. Yeah. And so the memory then, which then gets into the very first question about thank you for your service is people experience veterans as heroes or their head cases, right? They're either, um, you know, they kicked in the doors and they did all the great things or they come home and they're, they're broken. Yeah. They're broken, you know, suicidal head case. And so there's no real middle ground. And so what I've been interested in is like, you know, developing a more robust and a counter memory of what war means, what it was like, um, because it is ambiguous and it is gray and it does depend on who you're talking to and maybe on what day, um, on what tour they're talking about. Like, we can't have a 17 plus year recollection of war. That's going to be black and white. Like it's going to be gray. Um, and that's, and that's the point. And so to be able to heighten and prioritize those, those extra, you know, counter memories, I think is, is our responsibility as a society to have a actual robust view of what um, these wars have really been like. Josh, why don't you go ahead and, um, Give us your view about counter memories. Kind of explain them a little bit. What uh, what should we be looking for in in looking about this topic? So I got into that when I was um, in school, reading a lot of critical theory, reading a lot of Foucault, and he talks about um, the French response to World War II and um, the counter memories of that experience and what were the films talking about the French response to World War II. Um, and so then he he takes that as he normally does with most things. And he looks at memory of, well, who does memory serve? You know, it serves those who are writing history. It serves those who are, um, who are in power, you know, and who are trying to maintain the hegemony. And so the counter memory then is, okay, well, what happens in those, in those in-between spaces? How can we, um, how can we privilege those, those sites? whether it's as a side of resistance or just, Hey, this is my story. I didn't experience Iraq or Afghanistan in that way. I experience it in this way. Um, so for me, especially as a chaplain, much of what I do in either counseling sessions or just talking to soldiers, um, is just giving them a space to tell their story, uh, with you being non-judgmental and just allowing them to, uh, just unfold and, describe what it was really like for them uh, instead of being told that this is what your experience was like, but it's to be able to start those conversations. Like I was saying with your grandpa, um, that <clears throat> what was it like for you in uh, being willing to sit in that ambiguity and to sit in that pain of um, this is what war really entails. This is what it entailed for me. This is what it entailed for my family. 
this is what it's been like for me to come home um, and try and go back to work or try and go to school and try to make sense and make new meaning out of what it meant to, um, you know, do these things on behalf of the government or on behalf of your unit or just, you know, yourself as an individual soldier. And so um, I just was getting disillusioned with movies about war. Um, the national anthem stuff really frustrates me that there's just, there's only one black and white view of our memory and our whole collective narrative of these wars. And so how can we make that a little more rocky and a little more you know, ambiguous because it, um, because the ambiguity is good because then you're going to have to start asking the deeper questions like we've been talking about. You're going to have to say, well, why are we doing this in these countries? I didn't know we were in Niger. I didn't know we were doing this to Yemen. I didn't know, you know, X, Y, or Z. And so, you know, kind of memories just offer the opportunity to kind of make things a little more gray instead of so black and white. It forces people to deliberately sit in the middle between hero and head case. It's it stopped a little bit of the, 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 the blatant labels for a minute. Absolutely. Yeah. It, and that might not be a comfortable place to sit. Cause then you're going to have to, you're going to have to start asking follow-up questions. You're going to have to start thinking a little more critically about, um, you know, what's really going on. I know the, uh, I can't think of his name right now. The author would, the guy who does stuff on moral injury. I know in the, uh, yeah, uh, David Wood. Thank you. Um, in that podcast I listened to, he, he really emphasized what you just mentioned about you have to sell yourself to the person that's sharing. You have to find a way, and however you know them, to let them know you're okay with the discomfort of the words they share. You're okay. You know, you're, you're going to sit there and you're going to shut the hell up. That's the number one thing, right, is that we need to listen intently without being judgmental and letting them get through what they need to say. Okay. Okay. Danny, uh, you, have, you have any thoughts about this? You know, collective memory is a problematic thing because I'll, I like to go after sacred cows and one sacred cow is the second world war, for example. The collective memory we've been fed about the Second World War is really mythologized, really sanitized. You know, it's this whole idea of the Greatest Generation and the, the Perfect War, the Good War. And there's a book called The Good War. In fact, that's um, really takes on this myth. When the reality is, the Second World War probably had to be fought, but it was fought in a very immoral way. I mean, our allies were the Soviet Russians who had killed millions of their own people before and would kill millions more after. That was an alliance of convenience probably a necessary one in order to be determined, by the way, but it was an alliance of convenience. And we firebombed people from the sky. We firebombed civilians from the sky on purpose and killed about a million of them between Germany and Japan combined. We killed 90,000 Japanese in a single night uh, um, from March 9th to March 10th, 1945 with firebombs. And not only did we create such a firestorm that we uh, incinerated people to death, but the uh, women and children jumped into the canals of, uh, of then Tokyo uh, to try to survive the firestorm, but they boiled alive because of the heat that was reached. Okay, so this is the part of the Second World War we have to tell. It doesn't mean the war didn't need to be fought. It doesn't mean the Nazis weren't evil. It doesn't mean Japan wasn't an imperial aggressive nation. The point is, collective memories by their very nature tend to be sanitized, they tend to be moralized, they tend to be pro-American, um, highly patriotic, 
to the point of mythology and legend. So I'm very nervous about what the collective memory will be of the wars on terror or the war on terror, however we remember this. Uh, I'm almost positive it will be uh, inaccurate. I think all collective memories are by virtue of the fact, like some people have said, that there are just so many individual memories that come to any sort of collective is itself a problematic endeavor. But, uh, but we do create collective memories of war, and uh, we've seen that with just about every war up to, including Vietnam, and soon we'll see with our own wars. And I, I'm really nervous about how the United States will choose to remember these wars. We're really, really good at declaring victory after losing a war. We're really good at uh, changing the narrative so that we didn't lose, someone else lost. It wasn't really our fault. So the narrative behind Vietnam, the collective memory has become this. The soldiers didn't lose. They won every battle. They won the war. It was the politicians that made them tie their hands behind their backs and lost the war by selling out. Now, historians know that's bullshit. Okay, like serious academic historians can't get away with writing that because they can prove it to be otherwise. But it doesn't matter. It has an effect to the collective memory. So um, the very concept is um, is dangerous and it's it's often nefarious. So, uh, uh, last thing for today, and uh, I just thought of this, just hearing some of everything you guys have been sharing. And what would we suggest from where we sit today to veterans trying to deal with their own moral injury? What would be something that any of us has found cleansing, relieving? Um, I know, uh, 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 Josh, you mentioned about the uh, the honor flight. Were you talking about the honor flight? No. <laughs> who was who was talking about the honor flight a little while ago? I can't I can't remember at the moment. You can think it was Tyson. Oh, Tyson. oh yeah. Um, Tyson, you had mentioned that that seeing those guys off the plane um, from Illinois that and 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 talking with them, spending some time with them, that that really had an impact on you. Could you talk about that a little more? Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's been a long road in the last 15 years. Uh, it's been a windy road, but I think in the end, you know, what needs to happen, what I've seen in my fellow Marines who have had the rocky times, and uh, some of them made it, some of them didn't. But I think it, it boils down to a couple of things. You got to, one, find your purpose, you know, whatever that is. If your purpose is, you know, playing music or finding wilderness or having a family or getting engaged in, in civic engagement, whatever you feel gives you purpose. And it may not come to you right away, but you can't just sit there and be a veteran for the rest of your life and tell everybody about those couple of years while you were a veteran and have that be your only contribution to society. Uh, the other thing I think is you got to find your tribe, uh, whatever group of people, uh, you feel that you connect with, you know, I think it's a dangerous thing to kind of hold yourself up and, and, and say, nobody understands I'm, I'm in it all alone because you'll find yourself in the dark hours and, and in those dark moments, you, you need to have others around you. So, uh, Find people, whether it's uh, your local veterans groups or reconnect with old friends if possible. Sometimes things have changed and, and we feel uh, that the, the civilian military divide is too far to be bridged. But uh, I think if we revisit some of the memories that we had before war, 
uh, it's healthy uh, to, to seek out uh, not just uh, veteran friendship and camaraderie, but also uh, reconnect with the civilian population in the community. So, um, you know, we're all leaders in our own ways. And I think that uh, continuing uh, to lead by example is, is truly important for a healthy lifestyle when you get out of the military on whatever condition that is. Yeah, and Tyson, I can't agree. I mean, I, I, I so agree with you. But, I mean, it's, it's communal. It's about community. And it's about not doing this alone. Um, mm-hmm. you, whether that's, you know, doing some kind of public service, you know, getting involved and um, helping that way, whether it's, you know, veterans groups and you know, going to a VFW or if it's just, re- you know, reconnecting with, with some kind of religious community or something that you can, a space where you can feel, um, you know, you're a human being and that you're reintegrating your experience with people who see you and who hear you and who love and support you. So, I mean, I so completely agree. I can't say it enough that uh, this is a journey not to be done alone, but to be done uh, with others. Um, it's all of our responsibilities. And so um, I'm thinking about how to make society more um, reintegration friendly. And so I, yeah, I just want to jump into. Well, we forget how much we forget how much trauma happens to people in the ordinary world. You mm-hmm. know, we, we begin to think that it's a veteran only condition and it's not. And so we need to be, the more that we tell, the more comfort it creates for those people that say that combat experience was too much for me or I couldn't have handled that too. Okay, now I understand. That person's a human and they went into a horrible situation and they came out alive and they have this damage. It's not good or bad. It's not right or wrong. It's just reality. I think that's an important point to make. And I think uh, that for myself, uh, what has been most important for me uh, successfully transfer, transitioning out of the Marine Corps and uh, becoming a better person was, was leaving behind this tendency uh, to rate trauma. You know, uh, one of the things that I really, really beat myself up about after I got hurt, uh, you know, I, I got to Walter Reed. Uh, a couple years after I was blown, well, no, about a year after I was blown up, I ended up at Walter Reed and I'm surrounded by people who are amputees, uh, who have been shot, who have been terribly burned. And I uh, look at myself and because I was mounted, uh, you know, I was in a tank when we hit this ID to look at me, there's nothing wrong. And I spent a lot of time looking in the mirror and thinking, I'm a fucking fraud, you know, like the, the people who really suffer, the people who really deserve help. It's those guys over there, you know, it's not me. And, uh, you know, I spent a long time in the dark being very upset with myself, uh, because of that kind of thinking. And it wasn't until, uh, years later, I met up with one of my friends after I retired and, uh, he was there with me on the day that I was injured. Uh, he was in a different tank. His tank was also destroyed, but, uh, his, his burned, you know, those guys, uh, their tank exploded, they burned. And I, first off, had always thought that it was my fault what had happened to him, uh, because of, you know, the kind of typical (laughs) survivor guilt stupidity that we get into where, you know, if I had only been doing my job better, or if I'd somehow, you know, sensed that there were IEDs in the road, then none of this would have happened. Uh, but anyway, I'm sitting and I'm talking with him in my house and I told him, you know, I said, 
I want to apologize to you because it's my fault. You know, if, if I had done things differently that day, you know, this wouldn't have happened to you. And, uh, you know, I told him everything. I told him that I felt, um, like a fraud, you know, I, I told him, I felt like, uh, you know, he, um, that all of my problems that all of my concerns that all of the things that I was struggling in with my life were insignificant compared to what he was going through. And, uh, you know, he looked at me uh, and he laughed. He said, you know, Matt, everybody thinks that. And he told me that when he was in the hospital in San Antonio in the burn your uh, unit, he was laying next to a guy uh, who was, burned worse than he was and he's laying in bed thinking i'm a fraud i don't deserve to be here you know like this is the guy he deserves help he deserves it i don't and uh, i'm going longer than i wanted here but the point i want to make is that nothing is gained by that kind of thinking and that the only thing uh, that matters is that if you are hurt and that if you are suffering it doesn't matter how that happened to you and it doesn't matter how severe you think that it was all that matters is that you're hurting. And if you are hurting, then you deserve help and you deserve to be better because none of us deserves to go through life uh, suffering and hurting. There are so many avenues that are available to us as veterans to get the help that we deserve. And it is, uh, it's something that I'm embarrassed that it took me so long to realize that. And it's something that it's because of that it's very important that whenever I have the opportunity to tell that story that I do it because I know that there are people out there uh, who are thinking those same kinds of things, thinking that they don't deserve help. And it's, it's just not true. It doesn't matter what your job was. It doesn't matter if you got hurt uh, stacking boxes. It doesn't matter if you got hurt running over a bomb like a fucking moron like I did. You know, uh, the only thing that matters is that if you were hurt, you deserve help. I have a similar one. I, I, I never got hurt in combat. I never, I never got wounded there, but when I got home, I, uh, I got, Crohn's, I got Crohn's disease. I got psoriasis. I got small fiber neuropathy, a whole sucks. bunch of things. Oh yeah. It really fucking sucks. A whole bunch of things that really destroyed my life and they're directly linked to my time in combat. But mm -hmm. I have a very hard time giving myself any similar credit to Matt, somebody like in, in, in your situation or other guys, like you said, amputees and burn victims and guys that have been through horrible, horrible things. It doesn't change the fact that I'm still suffering. It, it, yes. it you know, it, it's suffering is universal. That's one thing that we don't That's mention correct. about it, is that everyone suffers, even Paris Hilton. I don't know how the fuck she suffers too. <laughs> she does, but, but, but everybody does. And, and we have to give each other space to know that and to realize that suffering can never be identical because it's exactly. individual. It's, it's us, it's us in the meat grinder. Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, you know, I'll take the opportunity right now to say to you that you deserve help. You know what I mean? I do not look at somebody like you and think this fucking guy, you know, Oh, his problems. They're not, no, all of that stuff is, uh, the kind of like, uh, who, who said, uh, if you ain't calf scouts, you ain't shit earlier. That made me laugh because we used to say the same kind of stuff, right? All of that stupid, toxic bullshit, we need to leave it behind if we're going to be able to have uh, this better future that we all want for each other. And we do just need to give each other space to say like, yeah, you're working through your shit. I, I get that. I don't know what it's like to have Crohn's disease. I recognize that it probably fucking blows. And I'm hopeful that you get better, bro, because you deserve to get better. Thanks, man. Yeah, of course.
but no, it's but it's it's exactly this kind of dialogue, you know, is that we we the experiences are so varied. If ten of us sit around in a circle and talk about any of it, it all wow the, the contrast it just flies out and it's amazing to see, but we have to accept that bit of fear and walk into that yes. room, you know. Yes. Well, um, I think we're about done, guys. I think we've about done all the damage we can do today. Um, I, uh, I want to thank you all for being here. Um, I, I so love hearing other veterans' perspectives. Um, but all of us, are, are, are we're doing our best to help as many of our brothers and sisters as we can. So it, it, it categorizes us slightly differently. And I... You know, maybe we can do this again in a couple years yeah. and kind of kind of hear how people's experiences have gone. Um, but I want to thank you all for being here. Uh, Matt Moores, the uh, the legendary War Axe. Yeah, hey, thanks for having me. It was great talking to all y'all. It's always nice, uh, I don't know, to be able to communicate with people and say like, oh, you guys aren't fucking robots. You're yeah. actually real, exactly. real people, not the screen names. That's pretty cool. Absolutely. Uh, Chaplain Josh Morris, thank you so much for being with us, too. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the invite. Absolutely. Tyson Maker, my brother, thank you for being here with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, take care of one another. Absolutely. Yeah. Raw. <laughs> and, uh, this is great. Thanks a lot. Um, yeah, thank you guys for being here. And, Absolutely. Uh, Pleasure. Yep. All right, man. We'll, we'll all right. do it again soon. All right. Yep. Take care, all. Yeah, take care. Thanks, guys. Thank you for joining us today. Please come join the conversation at www.fortressonahill.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill or on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Fortress on a Hill. We want to hear from our listeners about the topics and issues pertinent to America's military and veteran communities. And last but certainly not least, Analyze your news and its sources very closely. Verify everything you read. And remember that no one, no matter how powerful, are above criticism, especially those with the power to send others into harm's way. We'll see you next time.